Welcome back to Agent Investor, inspiring stories of active agents investing in real estate and building passive income. In a business where potential deals are all around you, why not leverage your skills to invest for yourself, your family, and your future? And now, let's jump into the latest episode of Agent Investor. I'm your host, Tom Caffarella, and I am super excited to have my first guest, Tyler Chef on. Tyler, what's going on, man? Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. No problem. So um, obviously, today's topic is cash flow. Let's talk a little bit about why you got involved in real estate and why specifically you really got into cash flow real estate investing. Well, Tom, I'm glad you asked that because that's one of my favorite things to talk about. I've actually been in real estate twice. I took a break. I, when the After the market crashed, I took like a five-year sabbatical, went to work for the government. I'll explain that in a second. But I started as a house flipper in a real yep. So I did that. That was all fine and dandy. Made lots of money. Got greedy because I was a lot younger then, a lot dumber. Yep. Sold all my properties, but I didn't necessarily hire the right people to do my taxes. I kind of did it myself. Mm-hmm. So I may have left off a several of the sales that I did and I got a big bill from the IRS because they knew more than I did apparently. Yep. So with that, I, I needed to, I, I went and got a job. I, I was fortunate enough. I did not get hurt in the downturn. I sold off about, about a year before things really started to turn. So I captured the, the essence of the top of the market totally by accident, mm-hmm. totally by accident. Just greed is the only reason I did it. Can't claim any superior intelligence on that one, but so I went out, I got a job working for the federal government uh, at sea as a merchant mariner. And in doing that, I had an ability to, to work basically an unlimited amount of overtime. That generated an amazing amount of income. Uh, the problem is I was a W-2 income earner, so my taxes were insane. I was paying more in taxes than a lot of my friends make yeah. the entire year. So for me, I needed to figure out a way to legally reduce my taxes because I learned that when I was flipping houses, that my charm is not going to help reduce my tax bill. I need something a little more uh, realistic. So yep. that said, I got immediately involved in buying properties for long-term wealth. And by that, I mean, I did a little Google searching and I discovered real early on that if I keep the properties, in other words, if I change how I make money from the real estate, instead of flipping them, if I just keep them, that I can almost eliminate my tax bill. Mm-hmm. And that was, the, that was the primary motivation is really just tax related? Yeah, it was primarily tax related. And the fact that, you know, I worked for the federal government. I spent a lot of time at sea and I was away from my family. So I needed to be able to replace my income. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I wasn't willing to pay an enormous amount of tax. And I really didn't want to answer to somebody else. In other words, I didn't want to, wanted to be my own boss. Yeah. The real estate... You know, I've already had experience in it. So for me, it just seemed to make sense. I just needed to change how I did it really is what it came down to. So during the period where you were fixing and flipping, you didn't hold any of those properties. You sold off all of them and you did that right before the crash? We did. So the last year before things started to go, I had a bunch of different projects going. And mm-hmm. because the, um, the property values were going up at the time, 25% per year, purely out of greed, I decided to rent about a dozen properties because I knew that next, if I, in 12 months, I'd, they'd be worth 25% more and they covered my closing costs. Mm-hmm. But we did the rehabs, we put tenants in them. 
We waited a year, kicked the tenants out, cleaned them up a little bit, and then sold them and made a windfall. Mm. It worked out quite well. So that was my kind of accidental landlord, so to speak. Yep. Experience. And what what year was that? That would have been in 05. Okay. 04, cool. 05, right over that, that span there. And what was the year that you kind of got killed in taxes that, you know, made you think you've got to do things a little bit differently? It was that same year. It was been, as soon as I did all the, sold all the properties, the following tax year, which I think would have been tax year, late 05, 06, when I just got spanked in taxes big time. So what, when did you actually start saying, I'm going to start holding a lot of stuff? Was it 05, 06, 07? I figured out that I needed to hold in 2014, believe it or not. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so it was, yeah, because you mentioned that you had the kind of sabbatical from real estate, you were working a government job, and then you got back in 14. So tell us a little bit about, you know, so 14 to 17, three years, what you've done in the last three years on the rental side. Well, for me, the first thing I had to figure out was where I was going to get the money to buy property. So yep. I learned, I kind of immersed myself in learning more about the multifamily space, the commercial business, and how multifamily property appreciates, where the value is derived from. Once I figured that out, I was able to use that information. I had a, a mentor, a couple mentors actually, help me learn how to raise capital. Once I learned how to raise private capital, the rest was pretty much history from there. It became easy because... When you take the money out of the equation, you don't you no longer need the money. Now it simply comes down to finding the, the problems solved with the money, finding the opportunities and negotiating the deals to the point that they make sense. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about that, because I think for a lot of people, they they want to get into the buy and hold real estate sector and they just either don't have the money or they do one deal and then they tie up all their money in one deal how have you gone about raising the money? What are some of the tips and tools for everybody? For me, it was the realization that there are more people out there with money to invest and without the skills to do it than there are deals to be had. So realistically, at that stage of the game, uh, I just simply had to find people that had, say, retirement accounts, uh, mm-hmm. IRAs and things like that. And by educating them on how to do deals, what I figured out is most people don't want to do the work themselves. Correct. When they realize how much work it is, they're more than willing to partner with somebody that already has the team in place, has the experience. So for me, I I needed to, what I wanted to do is get those first couple of deals under my belt. That gave me the credibility to be able to do more deals. And then I just focused purely on finding people that had retirement plans. Uh, that wanted to grow their their retirement plans exponentially, and people that were risk adverse because I didn't. There's a certain mindset of the people with IRAs they they want to loan money to flippers. Well, what they re- don't realize with their 12 percent interest is that for 18 percent or whatever it ends up being is there's huge risk in that mm-hmm. as compared to long term investing for an apartment building. So I show them multiple different ways they can profit on a deal, and I just let them choose which works for them. So. How do you go about getting in front of these people? Are you running a RIA? Are you um, just, you know, bumping into people? Like, what is your strategy? Because obviously, if you're if you're getting people that have IROs and things like that, you know, a lot of them are are not super excited about the stock market and they like real estate and they understand it's a great investment. But how do you get in front of those people in the first place? Several different ways. I do public speaking here locally in Tampa Bay area where I go speak at different RIA meetings, but a value add speech. I don't have anything to sell at the end of it. 
Yep. Just to, I, I teach them like how to properly analyze a rental deal. Mm-hmm. I'll teach them how to raise capital. And frankly, when I teach people how to do what I do, I raise the most amount of money. Yep. People realize they hear the, what, the, what we have to go through and the legalities and the SEC regulations. That is one of the best tools that I have is giving away everything I got. People are like, wow, the guy knows what he's talking about. So I would rather do business with him. Mm-hmm. A lot of you think, well, listen to this podcast, you're probably thinking, well, that's great, but I don't know anything. Well, here's the thing. There's books in every library across the country. <laughs> yeah. And they're free. On Amazon, they're like, what, three to 10 bucks? Yeah. So I got a, started reading several books and I listened to podcasts and whatnot on the topic and learned what to do, what not to do, and then simply applied the action, applied the, the knowledge. So um, I forget the name of the movie now with Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, the one uh, with Frank Abagnale where he's um, Catch Me If You Can. Catch Me If You Can, yeah. And that's a true story. And, you know, the thing about it, and I, I'm kind of, you know, blow it on the exact quotes, but essentially what they say is, you only need to know one chapter ahead of the person that you're teaching to basically, you know, come off as the expert. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be an expert. And I think the more that you are an expert, the more that you know, the more that you can teach, the better you're going to do. But you don't have to be 15 steps ahead of the person that you're teaching. As long as you know a little bit more than the person that you're teaching, you can be in good shape. And like you mentioned, there's so many resources out there now. I mean, there's no excuse. I mean, you talked about buying books. I mean, you don't even have to pay for books these days. You can go on YouTube and there's so much, there's so much content. I bet I mean, do you have a YouTube channel? I do. And actually, a, a friend of mine, he learned, he's a multimillionaire now, and he learned everything he, he needed to know in less than a year off of YouTube. Right. So that's the thing. There's, there's literally no excuse now because all of the content that you need to know is out there on the internet. Um, so let I do the same thing that you do locally. So um, I actually run my own RIA group and I teach people how to flip houses. I've raised so much money off of that. It's crazy because like you just mentioned, I go there, I tell the means and outs. And when they realize what you have to do, a lot of times they don't want to do it. They don't want to deal with contractors. They don't want to go out and hunt for deals themselves. And I say, oh man, I can lend to Tom at 12% or 10% or whatever. And I've raised a lot of money that way. So, so you said you give it all away at the different RIA meetings. Is there any other tools and tips and tricks that you use in order to get in front of people that might lend to you for cash flow investing? A couple. Uh, my podcast is a huge value add. I mean, I, I teach them via the podcast everything that they need to know and what to look out for. Yeah. Is that I provide all the things that they that they I tell them that, that, that they realize they need once they get self educated. Mm-hmm. But above that, I spend a lot of time going to IRA functions. Okay. Most markets, IRA administrators usually will put on some sort of free training on a regular basis. Heck, half the time they even give you a free meal. But I go to those and because I too learn something new every day. Even though I got a lot of experience and I may have done a lot of deals, that doesn't really matter. I'm always learning new stuff. So mm-hmm. I go to those, number one, for the education. But number two, to network with people that may have a problem. And that problem is they've got money sitting in their IRA and they're either unaware or afraid to do something with it. I help mm-hmm. them place those funds into a long-term asset that will build the retirement plan. That's what we do. So to give, to give the audience kind of a you know general idea, how many hours a week are you spending trying to raise capital for your real estate business on average? I would say I work about 
50 hours a week. And of that, I would say about 30%, or I'm sorry, about 30 of those hours is focused on something to do with raising capital. That's crazy. So um, that's awesome. I mean, I think, um, you know, I was, uh, I have a, a Facebook group and somebody asked me, oh, you know, what do you say when you bump into to somebody at a networking event? And kind of, I think the, the thing that some people think is like, it's a five minute process. No, I'm serious. I mean, yeah, it, I it, know, it, I that too. <laughs> it, it really, it isn't. I mean, you, you've really got to put time, energy, and obviously you're doing it on a big scale. So you're spending more time, you're raising a lot more money than probably even the typical investor needs. But yeah, it's not a two minute thing. I mean, I probably spend five to 10 hours a week and I do it in a very passive way, like through, through the events that I have through my podcast and things like that. And I'm always raising money. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine what I could do if I if I dedicated thirty hours. So I think that's that's awesome. So, um, how is it structured for the investors that you have? Is it just that they're going to get a monthly check in the mail? Is it that they're going to get a piece of the action somehow? How does it work with you? That's the best part because I hate to say this answer because it's very cliche, but it really does depend on how what their needs are. Here's an example. Recently, I had a, a doctor. She was a very high-level neurological surgeon mm-hmm. that was her tax bill. I mean, she makes a killing as a doctor. Her tax bill in the previous year was a quarter million dollars. She paid a quarter million dollars in taxes. Mm-hmm. She had a bunch of real estate, but her CPA told her that she needed to sell all of her real estate because it wasn't giving her any advantage. Mm-hmm. Ironically, the CPA was kind enough to buy it all. wonder how that worked out. <laughs> but my point is, what she needed was not me to give her more money. She needed a tax plan. Well, for her, I sat down with her, and I'm not a CPA, and I don't pretend to be. But I sat down with her, and I referred her to a tax professional that would help her build a plan. Once that plan was complete, then she was able to come back to me. And with the help of the CPA, we could structure her investments the way they were most tax advantaged for her. Now I, I can get it. Into, it can get weedy and complex, and I don't really want to go into her particulars necessarily. But I'm glad that we did that, and I learned. That I was taught to do that because had I been like most people and said, "Oh, I'll give you X percent interest or whatever the return may be," I would have actually created a bigger problem for her. That would be doing her a disservice. Mm-hmm. So I was able to structure, help her structure, and help her get the help to structure a plan that not only reduced her tax bill, we reduced it. The new tax plan that she's got in place reduces it like by 70%. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So reduce that tax liability by 70%. So how much did she find in her bottom line? To do 70% of a quarter million dollars, and you'll see real quick, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I was able to provide her a steady return over time. In her mm-hmm. case, uh, she wanted two things. She wanted a stream of revenue that would kick off in a couple of years when one of her kids was entering college to help offset those college expenses. And she wanted to prepare for retirement. So we did a couple different deals with her and structured them different ways to meet those goals. You follow me? Yep. So I guess... the Yeah, it's not cookie cutter and vanilla that way. Yeah, so I think the answer, um, you know, again, for a lot of us, and I've made this mistake early on in my career, is that you feel like you need to sell, you know, whatever it is you want. So whether that's, you know, raising capital from somebody or getting a property at a discount, but really what works is assessing the needs of the person in front of you and really giving them advice that will put them in a better position. And what you're talking about, and I'm not going to go into detail on that 
subject because I think it, it gets complex and I don't want to have, you know, people, you know, feel like they need to know the tax code or anything like that. But at the end of the day, you put somebody, you put a professional there that, that could help you and you guys structured something that makes sense for them, which then helped both of you. So at the end of the day, it was a win-win situation. Absolutely. You know, a, a doctor friend of mine told me once, a prescription without, or I'm sorry, a diagnosis, a prescription without a diagnosis is malpractice. I knew I'd get it right eventually. Right. A prescription without a diagnosis is malpractice. And, and that's, why, that's why when you go to the doctors, they ask you a million questions. And it doesn't matter what you think. I mean, we'll go on, you know, all these websites and say, hey, doctor, I've got this wrong with me. You know, give me the medication. And they won't do that because they'll go through their series of questions to make sure that they properly diagnose the situation. Same thing here. Um, so that's how you're raising capital, which I think is a huge part, especially for newer investors. Um, what about the types of properties that you're investing in? You mentioned kind of offhand multifamily, and I think you, you mentioned even some commercial stuff. What, what are you looking for? And, and are you doing it all in the Tampa market? No, I actually invested in two markets. I invested in Memphis, Tennessee, and okay. also the Tampa Bay area here. I invest in Memphis because it's a steady cash flow community, which means not a lot of great things happen there. In other words, you're not going to see huge windfall returns and appreciation and false appreciation, things like that. But you can see good, steady, predictable cash flow. Mm-hmm. So that's why I like Memphis. Uh, Tampa is a little more cyclical than, than Memphis is. Well, I should say a lot more cyclical than Memphis is. This yeah, is Memphis is like Memphis. If you look at the appreciation on a map, it's like the most boring thing you'll ever see in yeah. a million years. It's crazy. It's like there's there's no ups and downs. If it was an EKG, the guy would be dead. It's it's <laughs> insane. And then Tampa, obviously, I mean, most of Florida, most of the major metros in Florida are like Boston. You know, like you know, you guys are are pumping right now. We're pumping right now, and um. So what percentage of your, your uh, rentals do you have in Tampa versus Memphis? Right now, we got about 20% of our properties in the Tampa Bay market, and the other 80% are in Memphis. Oh, wow. And, and you're doing that, I'm assuming, just because of the cyclical nature, right? Absolutely. I, you know, we buy when the numbers make sense, and only then. In other words, we're not buying because we think it's cool. We're buying only because it's going to be profitable over the long term. So, so the ones that you're getting in Tampa the 20% that you are getting there, is the cash flow there worse or about the same? Or what does it look like typically? It's pretty equal, actually. Um, they cash flow quite well. The difference is obviously Tampa, you're going to be in it for a, for a longer, for a long haul because you got to be real careful where you're investing in Tampa. And, and the difference here is the rents are much higher, but the costs are much higher. Mm-hmm. I can buy a property in, in Memphis for 7000 a door, let's say a, a 10 unit building for 70 grand and, and be in it for with rehab no more than 15,000 a door. That unit's going to rent for between 350 to 450 a month. Uh-huh. Here in Florida, I'm paying on the average of 50,000 a door uh, and my rents are hovering around between nine and a thousand. So that's still good though. I mean, I'm just running the, these numbers in the top of my, you know, just ballpark. Like in, in Boston, just to give you kind of an idea. We look for a hundred times multiplier. So if we're paying a hundred, I mean, there's no hundred thousand dollar properties in Boston, but let's say that we're paying five hundred thousand dollars for a three family. We want to make sure we're getting at least five thousand dollars a month in rent, and that's good in Boston. Believe it or not, in some sections of Boston, people are looking at three and four and five cap rates, meaning that yeah, 
they'll pay a million to get $5,000 a month in rent. Um, it's pretty crazy. It's a lot different from one you know area to another. And obviously in other areas of the country, like San Francisco, I mean, forget about it. I mean, you're not even going to get a four or a three or a two cap rate there. So um, it sounds like you're getting really good cap rates. They're getting what, uh, like 20 cap? Yeah, I'm not a big believer. For me, I, I don't use cap rate as a metric. And the reason being is it doesn't reflect debt service, doesn't reflect repairs. And mm-hmm. fortunately, everything I buy needs a lot of repair. <laughs> yeah. And because we're structuring uh, our debt private, we the loans are different. To, you know, sometimes it's a loan, sometimes it's an equity share. So it's difficult for us to use cap rate as an accurate metric for what we're doing. Nothing wrong with it as a, as a whole, but it's just not something we use. We're focused more on our, our cash on cash return. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking at IRR a little bit on that. And we look at the, the whole deal and we're very, very conservative. So for us, when we come out, like for example, a, a good cash on cash return for us, we're looking at, we want to be about 18, 20%. That's unbelievable. That's great. The key though is, is that we're real good on the, on the acquisition side, but we're even better on the management side. So talk about the acquisition side a little bit. Um, Acquisitions. What about it? Well, are these properties that are currently on the market, are they off-market deals? How are you actually going about acquiring them? For me, it's a, it, it, it doesn't matter to me whether they're on or off-market. I'm more focused on what is the problem? Why is it for sale? Or why am I in front of these people? How did I meet them? What, what's the story here? And for example, if, you just, if I don't go looking on Zillow for whatever just hit the market that's top dollar and then try to negotiate myself a great deal, I only focus on my monthly holding costs not overly focused on the purchase price itself mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, I'll never pay that property off. I believe in leverage. There's no reason why I should. I'm focused on my monthly holding costs. That said, if I go talk to a seller that's got like, say, a 10-unit building, I'm going to first figure out what is the potential of this building? What can I do with it? Mm-hmm. Once I figure that out, I'm going to table that information because that's not going to have any impact on how I pay for the property. I only pay for properties based on what they currently do, not based on what they will do. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a lot of conversation with the seller to figure out, number one, why are they selling? Number two, when they do sell, what are they going to do with the proceeds? And for that matter, are there going to be proceeds? Are they upside down on this property? How did we get there? And I focus on how can we control this issue and how can we get them over the finish line? How can we get them out of harm's way? Mm-hmm. When I focus on that, they tend to figure forget all about what Zillow says and, and what you know the local commercial realtor may say, because none of that really matters. Because we're not they're not sitting at the closing table. They're, I'm sitting at the kitchen table with them, and that's a big. Mm-hmm. So, are you the one that's doing all the acquisition work, or do you have anybody that helps you on that side? My wife and I bounce back and forth. I do the majority of it, so I do probably about eighty percent of it. She does about twenty percent of it. Awesome. So what are you typically buying? I mean, you said multis, but are we talking two units, 10 units, 50 units? What, what is your kind of bread and butter that you're looking for? We try to stay between 10 and 80 doors. That's kind of our sweet spot. And the reason being is that it's too big for the little guy and mm-hmm. too small for the big guy. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't have a lot of competition. Uh, I can kind of go in and, and acquire a property before anybody even knew it was for sale or there was an issue. Mm-hmm. that's been the key to our success. I'm, I'm not competing with other people. That's why I don't do direct mail a lot, things like that. I, mean, I don't, I don't want to compete. I'm an only child. So 
how are you how are you getting these deals? Like, what is your main source of acquiring them? To be honest with you, one of my main sources is my podcast, teaching people what a problem looks like. I have an amazing amount of people that call me on a regular basis with situations they've heard of. Hey, my uncle Jimmy has this fifteen unit building and he's in trouble, mm-hmm. or hey, my landlord's a jerk and, and everybody's leaving this apartment building. We do that a lot in Memphis. Our, our property managers actually source opportunities for us. Yep. If they hear of management nightmares from tenants, they will call me on the phone and say, hey, we got one over here. You might want to reach out to the owner and see what can be worked out. Let's take a quick break from the episode. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincameroncoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. So every market's a little bit different when it comes to tenants and problem tenants. How difficult is it in both of the markets comparatively to get a bad tenant out? It's not hard at all, to be honest with you. In, in Memphis, the laws are more favored to the landlord, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Yep. So we can usually have somebody out uh, in about yeah, seven days to 10 days in Memphis. Mm-hmm. In Florida, here it takes about 14 to 21 days. Mm-hmm. But what I've learned is the key is the paperwork, number one, uh, making sure your leases are structured in a way that we can terminate tenancy. We use annual leases, but but they run month to month. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Yep. So it gives us a little bit more push and a little bit more clout. However, we don't have a lot of tenant problems, I'll be honest with you, because we're very strict on who lives at our properties. Mm-hmm. Very, very strict. And I'm okay with letting apartments sit vacant for an entire month in order to find the right tenant. So tell us a little bit about that. What's your screening process like for, to get a good tenant in a building? For us, there's no felony criminal history, no drug use at all. Um, they have to make three times, they have to net, take home pay three times of the monthly rent. And that's critical. And, and that's the one we disqualify the majority of people. People are shopping way outside of what they can afford. We don't feel lucky when we have a tenant. <laughs> that's not our mindset. Mm-hmm. So the income qualifier is huge. Mm-hmm. And no prior evictions. And I'll tell you why. An eviction tells me that you stayed beyond your welcome. Mm-hmm. That tells me you're, you, you're combative because you had to be legally forced out of the property. That's a huge problem for me, and I will not let you rent for me if you've got an eviction. Hmm. Makes sense. Um, so I know you said you don't have a lot of problem tenants, and I think that's one of the biggest fears of people that are getting into this business. What percentage of your tenants, after you screen them properly, what percentage of them do you have to throw out for whatever reason? Is it like 5%, 20%, 1%? What, just what ballpark, what would you guess? I would say less than 1%. That is crazy. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So for me, for me, I, I own a lot of rental real estate in Boston. First of all, what would you guess the average length of time to get a bad tenant out would be? In Boston? In Boston. I know you don't know Boston. I'm just curious. Actually, I do. I've spent some time there. But I've oh, okay. Probably 90, 60 to 90 days. About six months. Wow. And, yeah. And it can, be, it can be up to a year. Depending upon what what tricks they want to pull and and this is just something and this is you know a national podcast and there's people like all over the place so it really depends state to state so you've got to know your state rules if you have a choice and you're in bordering states i mean i would so highly recommend going to a place that that does have more favorable um landlord laws 
We actually border New Hampshire, which has very favorable landlord laws. And we're actually thinking about putting some of our, our cash there just because of the problems that we've had in Boston. But um, so it does make a, a huge difference from one place to another. So are you ever buying anything under 10 units? Like, are you ever going after a two family or a three family or a four family? I will if it lands on my desk. Just recently, we, we bought a four family over in Tampa. It was one of those deals that just kind of came to pass. Um, kid that I was mentoring tripped over it by accident. He wanted me to, it was one of those things I didn't, I turned him down as a, as a student because I didn't think he was coachable. Uh-huh. And then he went ahead and found a deal on his own anyway, and they called me with it. So I want to buy it from him. Turned out to be fine. Yeah. So, um, and I'm assuming the reason that you're not doing that for people that are on, you know, wondering why you'd go after anything, you know, bigger. I'm assuming one of the reasons is that, so anything for units and under is considered residential, which means that the typical homeowner can get it financed through like a, you know, an FHA back loan, which means that there's more competition on it. So anything over four units is considered a commercial property for lending purposes. And I will say that anything I've ever been involved in, the price per, per unit and basically the cash flow that you're going to end up getting is always bigger immediately after you go over the four units. Because typically speaking, um, people can finance an FHA deal in today's market with 3% down. And there's a lot of buyers, first-time home buyers that are being pushed out of the market that are buying these multifamilies because it's all that they can afford today. And they'll go up to three or four units just because they want to max out you know, their cash. They, they want to max out the cash that they currently have. Once they go to five units, now it goes to typically a 20% down payment. Sometimes you can get it for less, but you're not going to get that 3% down payment, which is why it pushes out a lot of the market. Um, but have you, so it seems like though you've you've noticed a big difference between even five units and ten units in terms of competition because you're saying you're you're focusing on ten plus huge. What you find is in the five to ten unit space that those are mom and pop owned. So in my experience, it's been that the records are usually a train wreck. I'm a guy that likes a little bit of documentation. Give me something, and sometimes uh, you get absolutely nothing. I've actually had a guy hand me a box of napkins. Mm-hmm. He's been using a pack of napkins for a year. You track of his paperwork. It was literally napkins <laughs> uh, with holes ripped in them and everything. That was his paperwork. So, eh, I mean, I'll look at them all, no problem. We have a, a quick test method we use to analyze, but um, we'll we'll consider them. But we usually find they don't meet our criteria. Most of the mm. And what's the biggest building you go after? You said fifty units. I'll go as high as a uh, hundred doors, but usually it winds up being eighty, ninety. Okay. What's the What's the biggest one that you own right now? Well, I don't like to disclose that information anymore, but we're we're scaring the heck out of a hundred units. We'll say okay. <laughs> well, let's just say uh, you know, and again, we're just talking you know right. offhand, roughly. So, a hundred unit building. What do the numbers typically look like on that? Like, what's the purchase price, and what are the monthly rents, and and what can you expect to get back on a month to month basis for somebody? So, like for example, up in Tennessee, we're looking at. All in, we're about fifteen thousand a door. So you figure a hundred unit building, one five, one five, right? Yep. Uh, you're gonna. We're usually pulling in. We if so to use a cap rate, for example, if you wanted to use cap rate, we would want to be twenty twenty five cap somewhere in there mm. to make it make sense. Because in Memphis, you've got a whole different clientele up there, a whole different ball of wax. People are more transient. The city of Memphis is a huge rental market. In other words, 
the majority of people who live within city limits are tenants. Mm-hmm. They will move for $25. Um, <laughs> the guy down the street is running for $25 less. They will move over there. That's just how it works in Memphis. So so when you, you say you put people in one year, month to month, do you have people that maybe they move in for like two months and then they leave? Yeah, we've had that happen. Mm. The good news is, is that we have such a good, we have we got fantastic management in Memphis. So when that happens, we can usually have a tenant in. They can pass each other sometimes on the sidewalk. One's moving out, the other one's moving in. Keeping in mind in Memphis, we figure vacancy loss at 20 to 25%, depending on the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So on that 100-unit building, you're assuming that you're going to have 75 units occupied at all times minimum? Correct. And it so, has to make sense based on those numbers. So we're talking 75 units at what are, what would roughly the ranks be per month for one of those? Uh, they're averaging four, let's say four and a quarter on average. Okay, so 75 units times 425. So a little bit over 30k a month, man. That is, those are crazy numbers. So that that's that's twenty. Yeah, Correct, the, sorry. Yeah, here's the one thing we're not we're leaving out. They look great on paper at first glance. Oh, it looks real good to me right now. <laughs> the, the maintenance; those are older buildings, so yes. they're 60s vintage buildings, right? So they do have the capex is is significant, and I'm very conservative when I'm figuring capex. Most of them all need roofs going in. Mm-hmm. The tenants are very hard on them, so your your changeovers are pricey. You know, you can spend a couple thousand in a door sometimes. I mean, we've been very successful. Our average change out is around seven fifty a door right now in Memphis. And, and you you just do that like every time somebody moves out. You do a like if you buy a building like that, a hundred unit building. Are you, every time somebody moves out, you're doing the change out? Yes, absolutely. Okay, here's what we'll find though. Typical property, like something you might see in Boston in a great neighborhood, the change out is, okay, you clean the carpet, you might tidy up the paint a little bit, right? No, no. I'm talking about the kitchen's gone. Somebody stole the windows. <laughs> some of the stuff that we've, in some of the properties we have, they're in rough areas. That's yeah. Numbers look so good. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, you know, go you know, toe to toe with you, but we, we've got some pretty rough areas too. Oh, I'm sure you do. Yeah. So I, I think like, you know, the reality is if you want really good cash flow, you can't buy in the posh neighborhoods. You know, you've got to, you've got to go in the neighborhoods that, that if, you know, they got some, some issues and, and that's where you're going to make most of your money. Um, you know, where I was talking about in Boston, where you get like a three or four cap rate, those are top flight areas that sure. people just, you know, it's not my personal uh, take. I don't look at it like, well, I'm going to buy for appreciation. I never look at it like that. But some of those people are just like, I'm going to buy for appreciation and just basically park my money. Um, how is it for, so you buy those, and, and I'm only asking this because I don't buy, my, my units are typically anywhere from four to, to 10 unit buildings. So you buy a hundred unit building, What's the appreciation you can expect for something like that? Or is that not even in your mindset, period? It's in my mindset. It's always in my mindset. But I like to see if I can, I I like to be around seven to eight percent minimum uh, as we go on. Here's why. How I make my money is I'll buy a building with private money because usually when I buy them, there's not a bank on the planet that will loan money out. They're ugly, nasty, and people drive by going, oh my gosh, I can't believe that's actually standing. So we're buying them with cash, you know, other people's money, private capital. Yeah. We'll hold on to them for a couple of years, stabilize them. And then once we stabilize them, we're going to use institutional debt 
to refinance the properties. We will pull out the investors' capital, pay them back, pay them their upside, and then we take a tax-free payday. We'll roll that money into the next project. Usually what we'll do is when we pull equity out from Memphis, we'll redeploy it down here in Florida because Florida has the appreciation and cash flow. That's the big difference between the two markets. Yep. You know, Memphis, you're nice and steady, but you, like we said, there's it's flatline. So I think what you said is so huge, and I just want to, I understand it, you know, really well because I, I do that too, but I, I want to make sure that the audience listening fully understands that. So Tyler's using none of his own money, right? So he's he's raising capital in order to fund these deals. He's funding them cash. So if he's paying one five for that building in Memphis, they're paying one five cash. They're they're cleaning it up, making it, you know, able to be refinanced out within a two year period, getting the ranks up to as high as he can, making the building financeable. And then so he didn't use any of his money to begin with. Then he renovates it without using any of his own money. Then he refinances it, gets all of the money back out, right? You don't you guys are able to pull out everything, right? You're not leaving even the investor money back in. No, we pull everything out. He's pulling everything back out and he owns that building that's cash flowing. So I mean, man, I mean, that's how you want to do it. I mean, because at that point, I mean for for Tyler, it didn't really matter all that much anyways, because he didn't use his own capital to begin with. But now he's got more capital to deploy back out. So you're able to just continuously roll it over and roll it over and roll it over and accumulate more and more units. That's the beauty of it. You know, you come in and invest with us. Let's say you put a hundred grand in and I return you 120 in a couple of years or 130, 140, 150, whatever it winds up being. It, you, what are you going to do now? Because I ask people, at what point do you want me to stop writing your checks? Yep. <laughs> Sometimes they're like, don't bother writing me a check. Just keep it. I'm like, oh, uh, I've, I've had, I have to close this out. So I got Yeah, I, I had that too. I'm like, I actually legally have to give you the money back. And yeah. pe- people, it's funny because, you know, for no for people who haven't raised capital before and give people a good return on their investment, you know, you might think it's, it's a battle to continue like having that person lend money to you. They don't want it back because no. you're giving them a return on their money that they can't get anywhere else. And literally, like I've had people that, you know, I forget to tell them maybe that we closed out a deal and then they get a check in the mail and they're like, what the hell is going on? And I'm like, don't worry, we can we can we're going to have another deal coming up, but I do have to give you the money back and then we'll get you into something else immediately yep. after. But but, yeah, those numbers are awesome, though, even though you have to do work to them. I mean, I'm buying properties at a, a much lower cash flow per unit, you know, percentage wise. And I still have to put, um, you know, money into the buildings. And you're talking about buildings. You said that were built in like the 60s. Correct. Yeah. I'm talking about buildings that were built in like 1900 because Boston is is real old. Oh, and yeah. again, these are just, the, you know, differences from one market to another. Every You can make money in every market. There's no market that you can't make money in. Um, however, Cash flow per, per market does change a lot depending on on where you're at. So there are definitely markets across the United States. Typically speaking, markets fall into two categories. You're either in a market like Tampa or Boston or San Francisco or L.A. where it's really tough to get really good cash flow, but you get appreciation. Or you're in a really flat, steady market where you can get really, really good cash flow, but not a lot of appreciation. Um, so Memphis would obviously fall into the category where you can get a ton of cash flow. You know, you'll get appreciation, but you're not going to get rich off of you know the the few percentage points a year. Whereas Boston or Tampa, I mean, you can get you know in some when the years are good, you can get a ten percent, and you are getting twenty five percent in 
in the boom. But I mean, that, that was just a total fabrication of, of the market. Yeah. And where, where do you think we're at now? I mean, like in Tampa, as an example, I mean, do you feel like you're, you're overinflated at the, and the market might come back sometime in the near future? We've been overinflated for probably the last 18 months in Tampa. Yeah. When I started hearing about people literally getting in fistfights in the front yard of a, new, of a new property that came for sale, not even an investor property. No, retail. Retail property. Yeah. Now we know we're out of control. Uh, we have to call the police when you put a real estate sign up. People will, I got to have a house now or I'll die. Yeah. That's a big problem. I think that we are going to have a far greater correction than we ever did uh, in 05, 06, 08, whatever you want to say. I think it's going to be catastrophic this time. And, you know, we need it, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So how are, how are you planning for that? I mean, is that something that you're excited about because you're going to be able to get better deals or is it going to hurt you in any way? What's your strategy to get through that point? We're hoarding cash right now. So we've been on a, on a buy. We're building up. We've been leveraging equity everywhere we can so we can amass a large amount of cash. We've now, meaning... Now, meaning I want to pause there just so people can understand. You're pulling equity out of your properties right now because you can, because the prices are high, putting it on the sideline, and I'm assuming waiting to go in full force when the market does correct, right? That is correct. Yeah, and you're pulling that out. When you pull out that equity, you, you talked about in the beginning taxes, right? Mm-hmm. What do you pay on taxes when you when you take the money out of your properties? Zero. Zero. And that's why real estate is one of the best. I mean, people say to me, how much money do you have in the stock market? I'm like, nothing. It's, you know, you can make and leverage real estate so much better. I mean, it's crazy, some of the laws. I mean, just like that. So you're you're taking all the money out of your, your properties, you're waiting. And obviously, you're still buying good stuff when it comes along. Absolutely. But you're you're pulling as much out so that you can act when the market does correct. Absolutely. Will you go? Will you go more like so? Say the market crashes, um, and say it's pretty bad. Will you put most of your money back into Tampa or Memphis or a combination of both? Probably a combination of both, but it's one of those things. I kind of got to wait till we get there to judge. Yeah, we'll say this: my systems, and this is tough to admit, but my systems and my team in Memphis is pretty is is considerably stronger than that <laughs> up here in the Tampa Bay area. So I'm more inclined because I, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a lazy investor. I can get a lot more done with a lot less money in Memphis. I get a bigger bang for my buck up there. So if I'm going to lean some way, even when the market crashes, I don't think Memphis is going to feel much at all. Mm. Just keep trucking like it always does. If you look at the charts, financial charts over the, the whole housing boom and bust, Memphis, nothing really happened. And you see those little plates that says, here in, 19, in 2008, nothing happened. People just kept doing what they do. Mm. So I will probably, if the numbers make sense, I'll absolutely buy here. But in mm. the interim, we're focused on non-performing numbers. So how far away do you think we are from this correction? If I mean, nobody has a crystal ball, but I mean, your guess, what would you say? I'm going to say that if it doesn't happen in the next 18 months, I fear for what comes after that. Meaning that, that it'll be even bigger of a, of a fall. Yeah, even bigger than the fall. The stock market is overinflated right now. Bitcoin is higher than it's ever been. There's zero, uncertainty. you know, there's, I mean, there's just epic proportions of financial insecurity everywhere. People don't know what's going on. It's got to happen soon. And it has to. I mean, there's just too many indicators that are pointing. The Bitcoin thing is so crazy. I mean, it's like, 
I, I have a friend who, who said to me, he's like, you know, what do you think about investing in Bitcoin? I'm like, once the general public, you know, gets excited about it, it's over. I mean, at that point, you know, to me at least, I mean, that's my opinion of pretty much any asset that, that once, you know, your grandmother's thinking about buying Bitcoin, it's like, it's game over. It's, it's overvalued at that point. But, um, but yeah, so what, um, so, you know, go back to kind of your, your starting days. Like what advice would you give to the person who, you know, is thinking about buying their first rental property? Like what's, what's step one for somebody who wants to get into this, into this game? Step one is get your mind right. That don't believe that you can't do this. Don't believe what people tell you that cannot be done. Focus on what can be done. That's one thing that held me back for a long time. Well, yeah, it's funny you say that because I always say to people, there's a lot of dumb, rich real estate investors. And there's a lot of smart people that don't get into it because they don't think they can do it. And it's kind of crazy because some of the, the richest real estate investors aren't, you know, I mean, they're not stupid. I mean, I'm just kind of exaggerating here, but they're not the sharpest tools in the shed. I mean, you can make a lot of money in real estate not being a rocket scientist for sure. So definitely getting your mind right. Um, what else? Is there, is there any other piece of advice you'd, you'd give to somebody in the beginning stages? I would say focus on focus purely on start where you want to wind up. In other words, don't believe that you have to flip your way to buy and hold. Just mm-hmm. buy and hold. It's that simple. Yeah. Building wealth in real estate really, truly is simple if you let it. Where it gets complex is that we sign on to what we read on Facebook and see on YouTube. And I got to flip houses. I got to wholesale before I start. I believe that's a lie. I believe that anybody can start simply and buy and hold. And build. Yeah, I don't, I don't see why you'd have to wholesale or flip first. I don't see them as really even necessarily being, I mean, not that they're not related, but I don't see one as having an impact really on the other. I don't either. Yeah. Where that started. Um, so I know that you do a lot of teaching on, you know, helping people learn how to buy cash flow properties. You've got a podcast. Um, I know. So cash flow guys is your website, right? That's correct. Cashflowguys.com. Which is www.cashflowguys.com. And you've got a lot of different things. So you've got the podcast. What other kind of learning tools do you have for, for people? At the moment, of course, we've got the podcast, we've got the YouTube channel where I do Cashflow Guys TV, which is a weekly uh, live video stream. You can mm-hmm. go to cashflowguys, uh, cashflowguys.com forward slash TV and register for that. It's free. Uh, and that's the live Q&A. So people can come on that Fridays at 11 o'clock anytime they want and ask any question they want about real estate. We'll do my best to answer it. If I can't answer it, then I will refer them to somebody that can or at least get the answer report back. Uh, over and above that, we're just getting ready to launch our, our first mastermind. We've had a lot of pressure from a lot of levels, so we're launching that actually in January. And, uh, we just opened up opened it up for registration here three, four days ago. So we're excited. That, that'll be a live event, I'm assuming? Yeah, we're going to do it on Zoom. Okay. So it's not going to be in live. It's not going to be in person, um, except for those that are in my market. But uh, for na- people that are nationwide, it's going to be available via Zoom platform. It's so crazy now nowadays, so like, you know, Zoom and all this different stuff. I mean, you know, me and you right now, we're in totally different markets, face to face, and it's it's basically like we're in the same room. Right. So so the stuff that you can do, I mean, a lot of people do have the in person events and I do think it is fun to travel, but you can get ninety nine point nine percent the same exact experience through all the technology today. Yeah, so 
huge. What was that? The savings and not having to fly to Boston. Or oh, Boston. yeah. And the time, too. That's the other thing, I think. You know, you... I, I'm not against... I, I do go out to these different events sometimes, but but I think, like, you know, it's, it's a big undertaking to, to get somewhere nowadays where with the, how the technology is, you literally don't need... You can basically be live with somebody without having to travel all that distance. Um, so what's the best way for somebody to reach you um, that, that has any questions? Best way is through my website. Just go to cashflowguys.com. If you need a more of a quickie answer, there's an option to text us. It'll go to my assistant usually. But during the day, I, I watch it. If I'm sitting here, it comes up on my computer. I'll try to answer it. I try to interact as much as I possibly can. But at the same time, I'm not one of those guys that's not doing I'm out doing deals. So a lot of times I'm in the field. Um, but feel free to reach out through the website. There's contact forms and all that Awesome. Well, it was really great having you on. I know, um, you know, the listeners are, have got a lot out of it. I got a lot out of it. I've got some questions for you after the podcast, but, um, but I appreciate you, you coming on and, and good luck with everything. Appreciate it, Tom. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Agent Investor and especially thank you for sharing the show with other agents and reviewing the show on iTunes. Every time you share the show, you are potentially changing someone's life. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincameroncoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. And stay tuned for the next episode of Agent Investor.